Welcome to Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach. And I'm Brandon. And today we are here interviewing Dan Duggan. He is the chairman and CEO of Healthmore and is also the chairman and CEO of the Flint City Bucks. And so Dan has a variety of perspectives through these two experiences that we hope to shed some light on and bring to the table. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately about businesses during the COVID pandemic and this time where things have been changing radically in a lot of ways and everyone has been shifting to a quote unquote new normal in a lot of ways. So we're hoping that Dan can offer his perspective and we can have some good conversation. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. How are you guys doing? Good. Pretty good. So Dan, we just wanted to jump right in and ask from a general business perspective, this COVID pandemic has hit everyone really hard and a lot of unprepared businesses have gone under. Many more are teetering on the edge. Still others are adapting and thriving even. So we wanted to get your perspective just as someone in the business sphere during all of this, as someone who is directly working with running Healthmore and Filter Queen, how things have changed during this pandemic and how running a business has gone for you. You know, we were hoping to specifically get your perspective on Healthmore and Filter Queen because you guys have a range of products that are specifically suited for the COVID pandemic. But also just generally speaking, you know, what you're seeing happen in across the board with various businesses. Uh, yeah, so uh, we were deemed uh, a necessary business. Uh, so we have been open uh, ever since February. Uh, we've never closed. And uh, as you say, Zach, because we are, uh, we make one of the world's finest air cleaners, if not the finest air cleaner. Our product has been in greater demand over the last eight months than probably ever before. And and so we've been busy as a, as a corporation, we've been busy, but uh, the real challenges at the very beginning were like everybody had was the unknown. You know, uh, you can't prepare for this because there's no playbook. Nobody's ever done it before. So we uh, initially started with uh, we got to protect our people at the factory first. That was that was first and foremost. And so we educated ourselves. Uh, we've learned everything that we could uh, probably uh, erred on the side of reading too much. Uh, but my philosophy was we don't know what we don't know, so we've got to educate ourselves and we've got to listen to science and we've got to listen to people that are a whole heck of a lot smarter than we are. And so we took all the advice and we put uh, precautions in place from uh, running an operation, running a factory, protecting our people, uh, the logistics of bringing in incoming parts and incoming boxes and packages, things we never thought about before. All those had to be put in place and they were done very quickly. And, uh, you know, we, we, we dealt with it. Uh, we've made a lot of changes on the fly. Uh, but for the most part, the first thing we did was everybody's safety was first and foremost. And if anybody's not feeling well or you think you don't feel well, uh, stay out of here. You know, work from home. Don't come in. And so we've, we've learned a lot about people's ability to work from home. And that's probably one of the biggest changes. And I imagine you may talk about that later. Uh, that society's going to see is. Uh, that was that was probably taboo in a lot of businesses where whether it was lack of trust or uh, lack of motivation, where a lot of people get distracted working from home. I think we found that that's going to be the new norm uh, in a lot of industries. Uh, but from our business, it, it is impossible because we we build and put together a product in a building which needs to be shipped out on a daily basis. So we, we've learned a lot. We've changed a lot on the fly, but uh, knock on wood so far, we've done really well. Yeah, well, that's good. And that's pretty fortunate that your company has been not only to, but to succeed, but to thrive in such a such a 
environment. Won't you agree to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's indicative of obviously what this pandemic brings about and what kinds of changes need to be uh, implemented, but also, you know, it evidences the need for certain kinds of products and services. And I think generally speaking, you know, not just speaking about filter clean, but in general, right, it's evidenced a whole new subset of businesses and business and industries that have new value now that that they didn't before, right? Uh, even going so far as talking about essential workers, there's a, hopefully, I, th I think there's been a, a new level of respect for a lot of those positions that may have been deemed more, either more replaceable or, or whatever before, um, because the pandemic has kind of illustrated the flaws in this. So yeah, I think it's, it's great that you guys have seen success during this time for sure. You touched a little bit on some of the adaptations that your company has put forth. A lot of those, you know, following the guidelines of whether it's the CDC or the scientists. Could you walk us through a little bit of maybe some of the, the specific things you've put in place that, you know, you think have helped you to continue growing and thriving as well as you guys have? Uh, you know, common sense stuff. If you're going to be operating a business in today's COVID environment, uh, you need to have protocol and everybody has to understand that this protocol is serious. So uh, every business has checks and balances and things that you have to do. And, uh, you know, sometimes those things get lax, especially when you, you know, we've been in business for 92 years. Uh, I've got workers, uh, average workers probably went with me for 20, 25, 30 years. So it's really easy, easy to get complacent when you go to work at the same place for many, many years. Well, one day they woke up, we flipped the switch and said, from the day, the minute you walk in the door, you're having your temperature taken. And if you, you know, if you're over 99, you're out of here. So go home. Nice. Uh, and that means that when you are not at work, you better be paying attention to what's going on with family members, uh, your social habits, things that you do. Because if you go out and, you know, whether you go to church or you go to the football game or you go out and do a party on the weekend and you come back and you're, you've got a fever, uh, you're, you're not going to be working. So everybody has to be cognizant of what they're doing. It's a very difficult thing to do because it's invisible. We don't know. And even some of the people that are most, you know, conscious of what they've been paying attention to doing and not doing have come down with this. Uh, so we've just changed it from, like I say, walking in the door and having your temperature taken to everybody is masked up all the time. Nobody's eating lunch together. Nobody's, we're, we're keeping everybody, our workstations are 10 to 12 feet, not six feet. So we've revamped the, the whole factory for the most part. Uh, less touching of doors, less touching of, less sharing of things, propping doors open, just little things that you have to look at and say, every time we don't touch something or we can take a potential spread out of the day-to-day the -day business. So they're little things, but anybody who runs a business or uses common sense is really concerned and understands how dangerous this virus is and what it can do, not only to human beings, but to destroying businesses, putting people out of business, so on and so forth. Uh, they should be doing the same thing. You just got to be really cognizant that, you know, there is no right or wrong answers other than this, this guy's lurking out there around the corner and we've just got to really be conscious about what's happening. I agree. Uh, I, the fact that your company has been able to almost be conscientious of that, of the reality that we're living in and then other people, I guess other businesses are not following suit. Or I guess their business model hasn't followed suit. It really shows that, I guess the unconscious efforts that a lot of these businesses have preemptively to succeed even through climates such as this. I wanted to ask in regards to like uh, employee benefits and healthcare, how is your, as, as a CEO, has your mind shifted almost in that regard or even uh, looking at 
your own business model? Like how has that has how has that changed pre-COVID to eventually post-COVID? It really ha- we haven't changed anything. You know, we're obviously paying attention. My HR people are are, are paying attention to what's happening and there's obviously political ramifications of things that could happen in the in the coming weeks, months, years, whatever. So uh, but we've always provided free flu shots. We got anybody that's even thinking about being sick, we get them out of there and get them taken care of. That's just the way my philosophy is and my company has operated. So we're, we're just using a common sense thing. And, and maybe we're, some companies would say you're being way too lenient or you're being too cautious, but I don't think you can be. But, but as far as changing our, our, our health care plan and all that stuff, we have a very good health care plan in place. If the political uh, world changes and things change, we will change with it because one of the reasons why I've got employees that have been with me for 30 and 40 years is because we look after them. Uh, I wish I could pay them all more than I do. Uh, that'll happen as the company earns more money. But if I can't pay them, you know, the extravagant amount of money that some companies can afford to, the least I can do is to make sure that they're they're looked after, their benefits are as good as they can be, and that they're safe when they come to work. And that's the best thing I can offer them at this point. Yeah, that's great. That's an awesome philosophy to have, I think. Um, you touched on briefly, you know, anyone that owns a business or has common sense has a certain mindset on a lot of these things. One issue that many have taken with this pandemic is that they've pointed out that it's furthering the divide financially between the, the poor and the rich. And they, they will cite examples such as big tech or Amazon, et cetera, that while the stock market plunged and everyone lost a bunch of money, that then they will, you'll see the headlines, right? That billionaires have gained X billion dollars during the pandemic and they've gotten this much richer and things along those, those lines. Um, I was hoping to get your perspective on that line of logic. And from your perspective, what would you do to explain to the non-business owner, the, the person who is not at all involved in business, may not even invest in the stock market, you know, may not have much of an understanding of these sorts of things, how would you explain the phenomenon of the, the rich getting richer, the billionaires making billions off of these kinds of things and the, the types of businesses that are thriving and growing like that? Because obviously, like we've said, it's not nearly every business that is feeding and many of them are going under. Um, it's only really those that have either innovated or provided for a specific need that has magnified during this pandemic. So I was hoping to just get your perspective on that and see if we, maybe we could offer something to to the non-business literate folks that are listening in. Uh, well, look, at the, I don't believe that the billions of people have made, the, the, when you say or other people say they've made all this money off the pandemic, you can go back into any de- decade in time for the past 200 years and somebody can show you a group of individuals that profited off of a period in time in, in life, whether it was a, <clears throat> a crisis or an opportunity or whatever. Those will always happen. And that's just that's just the structure of our society and the world that we live in today. The rich are always going to get richer if they, you know, use their money and they invest it. But to your point about the small guy, the the lower person on the totem pole, I started in business as an 18 year old out of high school. Uh, I bought the company. I've been working for the company for 42 years. I bought the company with 92 year old company five years ago. So I didn't have a dollar. I didn't have a car when I started. So I was that guy. I just I had an opportunity to go out and work and to sell. I worked my butt off. I started saving money, what my mom and dad taught me to do. Uh, bought my first house before I was 21, uh, and I just I didn't have money to put in the stock market. But I realized that you know at the time back in 1980, 
I could spend $500 a month in rent, or I could spend $500 a month on a mortgage, and I could have some equity. So anybody that's out there, whether you're 18 years old, or you're 20, or 30, or 40, I would tell you that you don't need the stock market to be successful in life. You need to make the best that you can with the money that you have. You've got to be smart. You've got to make good decisions. And where you can buy instead of rent, to me, that's how I started, everything that I did. And then as you're able to save some money, uh, and if you decide you want to invest in the stock market or whatever, there, there's all kinds of opportunities. I would never try and advise anybody, including my kids, into what to do. Part of it is what is your passion? Part of it is what are you really invested in? Are you willing to work for it? Because if you just think you're going to sit here and go bet on the football game on Sunday and make a million dollars, or you're going to get into the boom, or you're going to try to buy the right stock, it hasn't worked for me in the 60 years I've been on this planet. And if it, you know, if I if I knew that answer, I'd give it to you. But I say hard work and take what little you can and invest and invest and uh, pay attention to what's going on and, and things will work out for you. I 100% agree. I think a lot of people have these conceptions. They see what's in the media. They see the the whatever's fast and they react to what's happening in the media you know regardless of you know whether it be something with the stocks and people say buy stocks they buy this and they have no idea what they're doing where if you follow your passion and then just stay updated you should at least pent off farewell yeah and speak kind of with that same idea of just being aware and almost that separate separation of awareness with a common individual and someone like a business owner as yourself yeah. What are some misconceptions, at least throughout the pandemic, that you think a lot of a lot of normal nine to five people are just not aware of that has to be coming to consideration to run a business that is thriving, such as the two you have? Uh, that's hard for me to say when you say misconceptions, because I'm not really sure what people think. You know, the the pandemic has got everybody you know, in a quandary for different reasons. If you're uh, a, a younger couple with small kids, your real concern, other than we are, our, our health is our number one concern. We all get that. But but you got two or three kids and your concern is I got to get my kids back to school. Right. So that's where their focus is. Some people that are that are a little bit older, they're concerned about their health and, and they're more susceptible. So, you know, everything that they're dealing with is more geared towards uh, I want to live my life, but I got to avoid doing certain things that I've been used to doing that I love doing. So I don't think it's as much that, you know, there, there isn't, like I say, there's not a playbook that says this is how it works. I think everybody's got to look at their own individual situation and say, I got to make some sacrifices. Uh, hopefully I don't have to do them for long. Well, although we said that in March, we thought it maybe by summer we'd be back to normal. Uh, but it is what it is. And if it takes us another six months or another year or whatever, We've just got to say that uh, whatever changes I got to make to make my family safe, whether I'm 20, 40, 60, or 80, I got to make those and I got to be diligent. And we all know that we're all fatigued with this. This is this this is crazy. You know, we're all tired of, you know, not having to be able to do the things we want to do, go to the games and, and go out and see our friends. But at the end of the day, this virus doesn't really care what we're used to. Uh, so we're just going to have to work through it till we get a vaccine or we get a solution to it. It's tough, right? When there's no there's no one size fits all, like you were saying. There's everyone has their own solution to their own problems that the pandemic has illustrated. You know, we had an episode entirely on drug use during the pandemic and how that's been spiking. And you know, those are very different problems from I've lost my job. Well, maybe they're related on some level at times. Right. You know, you know, very different from business related or money related. And then there's all all kinds of other spans the gamut of different problems that have arisen because of all this. So we've touched on briefly 
the essential worker, how that has kind of shifted the perception of some of these uh, jobs. Do you, so you guys, you said that you stayed open the entire time, um, but that you also had some people working from home and you had some other things. Do you have uh, a subset of employees at Filter Queen um, or HealthMore that are, would be considered quote unquote essential and on site? Um, maybe, you know, the factory workers or anyone else fit that category? Well, we, we all are on site. Uh, so okay. when, when I say that we sent people home or people work from home, one reason they're working from home is because they're quarantining themselves. Got it. Um, you know, when, especially in the factory side of it, when you're, when you're building stuff, you got to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so some of our marketing people, you know, some of our jobs could be done uh, remotely. And if so, that's fine. But, but we're not in a position where, uh, you know, our, our, we're in tight quarters where I'm concerned about the people that are coming into work and where a lot of places where we want you to work from home because, you know, we got cubicles and we got too much space and this, we don't have that. We have the luxury of being spread out. So in a perfect world, I could have everybody working there and everybody will work in a safe environment without worrying about people breathing on them and all that. Uh, but uh, so I don't worry about people working from home in my business, but that is a huge, huge concern in a lot of businesses. And uh, oh, by the way, there's a lot of businesses where you can uh, work from home because you don't need to be uh, interacting day- on a daily basis or person to person or moving a product from one part of a factory to another out the door onto the UPS truck. And, you know, so we can't do that. We've got to be there, which is part of more of the reason why we got to be really diligent to make sure everybody stays safe and healthy. Because uh, if I get an epidemic, go through my building, we're shut down. We're in big trouble. Right. Yeah. And so essential workers, right? You know, especially maybe talking things like fast food or service industries, things like that. That you know, the argument for lower pay used to be at least in part the replaceability factor, and that you know you could more quickly replace someone in that position than you could in in several other positions. Do you think that this whole pandemic has opened up a new I guess, factor in, in all of this that now, you know, the, the jobs that these people are doing that are on the front lines that they do have to work in person and they don't have a remote option that, you know, this evidence is something that does provide for a little less replaceability, right? Presumably not everyone wants to be in that position. Um, so I'm imagining that that will kind of change the, the conversation and, and landscape surrounding these jobs post-COVID. Well, I guess I'm all kind of old fashioned. I think that every job is important. And uh, you want right, to talk about fast food? Uh, I'm not a fast food guy. I don't eat there. But, you know, I, I know that they're part of our culture. They're part of our life. And at some point in time, as you're growing up as a kid, you go there. And uh, we've all, a lot of us have worked in restaurants because mm-hmm. that was the low level job that we could do while we went to school when we were 14, 15, 16 years old. So whether you're, you know, putting the fries in the fryer or you're, you know, working a cash register or whatever you're doing, uh, those are important jobs. Uh, now, should they be paid $7 an hour? Should they be paid $15 an hour? Uh, th- I'll leave that debate up to, you know, the politicians, different people. Uh, I, I do believe that without a doubt, now obviously in this country, uh, there's areas where you can make $8 an hour and you could do okay. And there's other areas you could make $15 an hour and you're still behind the eight ball. So mm-hmm. there, there is a huge uh, differentiation and that, and that should, and that is the way it is. You go to Colorado right now, you're making 14, $15 an hour just because that's a competitive wage. Right. Whereas if you're in, you know, Detroit or Cleveland, you might be able to get the same job for eight or $9. But I think all jobs are essential. Um, some will be deemed more essential than others. I don't think we're paying, we can pay our healthcare workers enough 
uh, especially the younger ones that are, you know, that are at the entry level, the, the 23, 24, 25 year olds that have just gone out in college, getting their, their first step out in the world and going into the nursing or the medical field or whatever it is. And, and they're out there dealing with this stuff and they're doing it at a very low wage. Um, I, I, I feel for them, but at the same time, I, I hope the strength and gives them the strength that says, look at, this is what we all got to do is we all got to start somewhere. And I think the champions in those industries will come out of this and the good ones will be paid what they're worth. And they'll say, you know what, if we could survive through COVID, man, 2022, 2023, and the future's only going to get easier. At least I hope that's what happens. Definitely. I definitely agree, especially coming out of the medical field. I think you almost made me want to go to work just now. I was like, oh, wow, this, oh, this is a great speech. <laughs> you definitely spoke upon a point that says everyone kind of had to stop and realize that once, if we're able to surpass this, the rest of it should be relatively easier than what 2020 was. Now, I'm going to kind of reverse that question to you. It's kind of a simple question, um, but I'm sure there's a level of complexity to it. So when you started your business, someone probably asked you or hundreds of people asked you, where do you see your business in five years? Now, with COVID happening in a, a world, you know, a pandemic, can you possibly even project a five years in regards to your company and the future of them? Not if I'm, you know, uh, if we're having a, you know, dollar side bet, I could tell you, but <laughs> I'm not rolling millions into it because there is absolutely no way to tell you what's going to happen. So what you do is if you own a business is you say, look, my core competency is X. This is what I do really good. This is what I know. Uh, and in my business, using for the air cleaners, for example, we've been building, making this product as a company for 92 years. I've been selling the product for 42 years. I got a really good handle on why people need it, what it does, why it's better than anything else. Um, and the fact in the COVID environment, now that everybody knows about the problems of my product, it's making it an essential product. Uh, everybody knows the problem. And this is the big, the hardest part we've had selling an air cleaner in the past was if you didn't have allergies or asthma, you can't see what's in the air. You don't think you got a problem. Right. Well, all you got to do is turn on a TV right now. And you know that this stuff is tra transmitted through the air, through aerosols, and everybody is suspect to it. So in the air cleaning industry, I know we have a good product. We're in a good place at a good time. But going forward, five years from now, look, I was... I was in Hong Kong, uh, you know, 10 in 2002, 18 years ago, uh, when SARS hit. Uh, I was in the Middle wow. East in 2012, 10 years ago, eight years ago, whatever, when MERS hit. Um, and we were right there with our distributors and people that selling our products. And so I've worked with a lot of doctors and medical people to understand the intricacies of what's happening with uh, viruses and things that are floating in the air. The average person doesn't have a clue. And, and today we're obviously a lot more educated because of what's happened here uh, with COVID. But if you ask me five years from now what it's going to look like, I'm just going to keep on telling you that we're still going to need to breathe. The next pandemic's been going to be around the corner. There's always going to be a need for air cleaner, air, air purification. And so from this business and this, in this instance uh, that we're talking about, uh, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And if we do it right, uh, where I'm used to selling, you know, uh, 500,000 customers a year, uh, my, my limits now are probably millions of customers a year. Uh, so, but I'm not banking on that. So you really can't open up a, a, a thing and say, Hey, I'll tell you what we're going to do just because of this uh, great pandemic that's producing all these air cleaner sales, we're going to sell millions more. No, you still got to market. You still got to make, educate people and you still got to be able to build them and you still got to deliver them. And then you got to warranty them and look after your customers. 
So there's a lot of challenge in the next five years. I hundred percent, I hundred percent agree, and I definitely foresee that. I was wondering, I was like, this is like a huge, like to make the profit margin or to make the margin of error must be like you know rolling a dice because you don't know what's going to happen. It definitely cut down your advertising. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's that we don't have enough time, and this isn't the proper uh, venue for me to go into. But you have no idea how rolling the dice is is uh, a term that we use quite often right now because we're in, we're in the process we're already doing business in 40 countries i've had uh, another 40 countries who have interest in our product in the last three four months wow. i mean this could my company could explode things could go so crazy to the point where i can't even keep up with it that is a huge problem for me it's a good problem to have i guess <laughs> never had it before but you can't plan for it and if you said well boy if this happens now wait till two years three years four years if i right. did that I'd have to go bring in $12 million worth of parts next month. And then if it doesn't work out, I'm out of business. So it's, it's a balancing act. It's a challenge. But like I said, it's a good problem to have because we've got a great product that's serving people in the time that they need it the most. No one can refute that. No one can refute the impact that these, uh, these ventilators and these air purifiers have contributed so much, at least within these past couple of months. And- yep. So I wanted to shift gears uh, slightly and talk more broadly about business and money, as that's kind of a, a broad subject that people oftentimes don't like talking about. We had talked about this previously with some listeners that there was a study, I believe it was done by Fidelity, that a majority of, of couples, one of them doesn't actually know what the other one makes. And even more so, right, if you look at in the workplace, there's lots of people that don't actually discuss how much they make, their employee benefits, the things along those lines. And so with this pandemic, again, opening up a lot of these conversations surrounding income, surrounding money, and surrounding all of these things, inevitably, some of these conversations may start to come up, both specifically in different industries, but also just across the board. Do you think, so from the business perspective, so from the, from the guy on top, what's your stance on, on employees discussing salaries and, and income and things of that nature? I know that it's a pretty split topic of discussion, right? You'll have some people that say that it breeds animosity between employees, but then you'll have also some argue that it is good to have the openness and good to have the transparency there so that people know that you know, that they're pay- being paid fairly or that they're being paid accordingly or, or what have you. Um, where do you fall on this, on this at, um, topic? Do you think that this is something that you would encourage, whether it's in your own in- industry, your own businesses, or just generally, or do you think that it's something that's better left unsaid? Well, I, uh, my philosophy is very simple. I assume as the person that owns the company that everybody in the company knows what everybody else makes. I don't tell them. It's not advertised but I'm going to assume that that somebody's telling somebody. Okay. That's just the way people talk. Uh, And if you think they don't talk, then you're going to get blindsided. So I have to take from the standpoint to assume that everybody else knows what everybody else makes. So I'm in a position of integrity. If somebody asks me, I'm not going to tell them this guy makes that. If he comes up to me and says, Hey, I know that guy over there makes 80,000 a year now and makes 60. uh, That's not right. I'm not going to address that because I don't have to address that. I can address the the reason why they're bringing it up, but we're not going to we're not going to talk about specifics of money. Yeah. So, from an integrity standpoint, 
I'm not going to, you know, uh, lie to these people. I'm not going to get into that. So that's number one. Number two, and more importantly, and I've always believed this, and I, everybody in my company knows this. If you think somebody's making more money than you are in the company, then you ought to get their job. You ought to work harder. Get off, get off your ass and, and go and get that job. Unless they're either special or they've got a skill set that you don't have. And if they have a skill set that you don't have and you want to get that skill set, and I think you're valuable, I'll get you the skill set. We pay for our, our people to go to college. We pay for their, their schooling and things like that. We pay for them to better themselves if they want to get a master's degree. We've got programs to do that. So if anybody's bitching about that somebody else makes more money, I tell them to work harder and come and talk to me about the opportunity. Now, if anybody ever thinks that their growth is being stunted because of who they are, their race, religion, sex, or whatever else that's in their mind, then I will quickly bring an end to that and say, I will guarantee you that you have the same chance to climb this corporate ladder wherever you come from, as long as your beliefs are the same in this company, your work ethic is the same, your integrity and your honesty is there, you will have that opportunity. And everybody in any company, whether it's a McDonald's or it's General Motors, should have that same philosophy. I like that. I like that's a that's a great philosophy. I think I agree 100%. That's exactly what Sewanee saying needed to happen. <laughs> you can't yeah, get any more black and white than that. It is or it isn't. He said it first from a CEO of a too successful company. Uh, I did. You definitely uh, had a sound portion that I, that really uh, hit my ear that you were able to have people go to college or even get master's degrees when with such a um, such a unique opportunity or a unique business, uh, especially in this day and age. What type of degrees are you looking for? What what type of what, what what's that what's that uh environment looking for degree wise well because 80 percent of my workers are factory workers there isn't a lot of degree quote unquote that you need but there are you know factory workers that we've had that are 40 50 years old that always wanted to get their college degree or their ged for that matter or they always wanted to take this communication class at the community college and if they want to better themselves and it's something that, that, that adds to their toolbox that they could bring to our company to, to use in another, you know, uh, another arm of our company, then we will help to fund that to pay for that. You know, from the people in the sales side, the marketing side, executive side, if they want to, if they're going to, I don't, I'm not just paying for them to, you know, say, Hey, I always wanted to go to Notre Dame and get a master's degree. Well, I'm not going to do that. If it's <laughs> going to help, it's going to help you to get to a higher place in this company so that you can go to another level that I have planned for you, you have planned for you, then we'll help you to do that. So the encouragement is always there. And oh, by the way, what it does is it takes the slackers out of it and says, well, if somebody would have given me the opportunity, I would take it. Well, I'm giving it to you. If you want it, go for it. And if you don't want it, then don't talk about it. <laughs> so it, it, it's fish or cut bait. And, and it's been a very positive program for our company. And you know, oh, by the way, we've got a lot of people that have no interest in learning anymore. And I'm okay yeah. with that. If they're, you know, they are where they are, they're comfortable, they're raising a family, they're doing their thing. Uh, there's no pressure on them. But the go-getters, the ones that really want to get to another level, that opportunity is always there for them. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And well, and it plays to the the theme you were talking about earlier, right? About investing, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be in the stock market, but you know, you as a business owner now are still investing in your employees by providing them with the education or the training or what have you. And then, you know, you don't have to hire a new employee that's already trained to do those things, or you don't have to hire someone new that then you have to train to do those things, right? You're, it's, it's just a further investment, which I think is great. Best, best investment you can make is in your people, especially yeah. if you've got good ones. 
because not only it's not re just replacing them, you can't replace good people. It takes time. It takes money. It takes it takes a lot of things that just aren't there. So you've got to look after your people. Yeah, for sure. You're also the chairman and CEO of the Flint City Bucks, which is admittedly a very different endeavor from Healthmore and Filter Queen. How, you know, do you want to walk us through a little bit? How did you get into get into that? How did you wind up being the chairman and CEO of that? No, my brother and I started that uh, that team 25 years ago. Been involved in soccer all my life in in Detroit. Uh, my brother ran the uh, World Cup here in '94, and on the edge of that, we were starting Major League Soccer was starting up in 1995. Uh, we were looking at an opportunity to get a Major League Soccer team in Detroit. That wasn't going to happen for a few years, so we started in the USL uh, with a minor league team. Uh, that was in our first year was 1996, 25 years ago. And uh, it turned out to be the most successful minor league soccer team in history. Won more championships, put over close to 90 people into major league soccer. Uh, so it's just been a passion of mine. Uh, it's the business model is it's a different business, but everything that I believe in is the same. It's about helping young people, these young college kids, pursue their dream to become professional soccer players. We help kids get uh, college scholarships from the time they're 18 years old. We help the good pros, the good college players get on to get pro opportunities. We've got people, a lot of 20, 30 guys around the country are now college coaches or professional coaches. So it's the same concept of finding the right people, getting them motivated, helping them find the path, uh, maybe opening some doors that they didn't have before, but letting them know from day one, this is all about you and not us. It's your work ethic and we'll just open the doors. And so it's worked really well. So this is this was year number 25. Uh, we moved to Flint uh, last year. Uh, was our first year. Uh, won another national championship up there, and uh, it's just been a, a love fest up in the city of Flint. Well, congrats. That's awesome. That's great to hear that you know that it's been so successful. Balancing your your passion project and the business side, right? There's depending on what your passion is and how you decide to pursue it. You know, once it starts feeling like work, once it starts feeling like a job. You know, there's the saying that if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. But if you're also working every day in your life, right, and simultaneously working on a passion project that is then becoming work and then becoming a, a more time intensive endeavor like that, you know, what would be your advice to people that are pursuing something like that, that, you know, either for profit or not for profit, but something that they're passionate about, that they want to be successful, but that also, you know, necessitates that, that business side of it, that finance savvy side of it that that doesn't necessarily come with the average hobby yeah well there's a simple answer to that but it's a difficult thing to do and that is you need to decide on what your level of commitment is before you jump into something like this uh, because if you want to be successful at anything in life you need to be fully committed and if you're going to get into something with one foot in and one foot out and ready to bail when you know uh, the proverbial crap hits the fan, then that's not a commitment and you're probably not going to succeed at anything in life, regardless of what it is. So uh, some people might say, well, it's your soccer's a hobby or whatever. It's not a hobby. It's, it's a passion. And so when I set out 25 years ago, we started on a bar napkin and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to win and we're going to produce professional soccer players and nothing's going to stop us from doing that. And if we don't do that, then we're going to get out of the business. Well, 25 years later, we're still doing it and we haven't got out of the business. But in a lot of times, and a lot of people I know that are with had similar goals that I have, if it doesn't, if it's not working because you can't make the commitment, that's usually when it starts to falter. Mm -hmm. So 
get out of it. Just say, hey, look, give, people say, oh, it's given up. Well, you can stay in it and keep losing money and right. ruining your reputation. Uh, or you can just say, I don't have the time to give forth the 100% commitment. So anything you want to do in life, anybody's listening to this, you make 110% commitment. And if you do, you stick with it and you follow it through. And there's a good chance you got to go through some hard times, but there's a good chance if you really believe in it and you're a hard worker, you'll probably come out on the other end. And if you're not willing to give the commitment, doesn't mean don't do it, but call it a hobby and, you know, don't invest as much and go be a volunteer or go help out. Uh, but don't do something just to say, because the ego says I'm the boss or I own a team or I'm in charge and then not be committed because you're going to look like a real fool in not too very long period of time. 100%. So I, I guess from the, after hearing this, you know, being a part of this, this episode, I'm hearing that you're almost like a complex leader in that for your hand to be in the, the sports business and into the business world, there's almost like you, you have like two lenses. So my question is, what makes a star, like if you've, you've been in the game for 25 years, so you've seen people start from when they entered to when they went to the league. And you also see other individuals start from just, you know, entry-level hirees all the way up to, you know, managers, probably regional managers. So what would you say would be the traits that are almost blended between the top athlete and then the top performer in the business world? Commitment, consistency, and hard work. Without a doubt, I mean, the business world and anything, I, you know, if you're into religion or you're into politics, you're into sports, if you're, when you, if you're a leader and you're going to give a message, it better be consistent. That's all that these young kids, uh, if they're looking to you as a coach, they want to hear. They don't want to hear you wavering every five minutes, changing your plan. You got you to gotta tell me what you stand for. Tell me what the plan is. And we got to stick to it and we got to make it happen. So they're looking for consistency. They're looking for somebody that's got courage, that's not going to back down uh, or waver. It doesn't mean you're always going to be right. And oh, by the way, something that most people don't do is when you're wrong, be man enough to admit it and say, I screwed up. I got that one's on me, but it's not life threatening. So let's fix it and let's move on because there's a life lesson in there somewhere, as opposed to the person that always wants to be right, always wants to blame somebody else. So whether it's in my two worlds, business and sports, they're the same. These young people, I'm going to tell them from day one, I'm never going to lie to you. We're going to be consistent. Here's the message. And we're not going to give up and we're going to follow it through. If you're willing to do the same thing, you're going to be with me for the long haul. If you're going to bail, well, then you're not going to be here for very long. So that's how we, we kind of weed people out. You can, you can tell in a lot of times who's really doesn't want to work that hard or make the full commitment. Um, and if you're not going to make a hundred percent commitment, man, you're, you're not going to succeed with me. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenally worded, I think. And I would say, and Brandon, you would probably echo this too, both for science and the medical community, but I think those traits really hold everywhere, right? Same in science. You know, you've got so many people in science that, you know, you're trying to churn out publications and trying to churn out research and and everything and if you don't stick with it right you're you're going to fall behind and you're going to falter where someone else is succeeding and so if you're able to put the work in and be committed and consistent about it then chances are you know not to say that there aren't exceptions but chances are you will be successful chances are you will on some level succeed and move forward whereas other others will either stagnate or or even move backwards so yeah i think that was very well worded. I think those traits are absolutely critical. Well, look, I don't know. I don't know Brandon's world, but I can tell you this. It sure sounds to me that if I was in the medical 
world, uh, listening to the scientists and the medical people that I've listened to on a daily basis, hourly basis, <clears throat> it seems since since February, those people I would believe would be the same. You'd have to have the, you you got to have leaders who have a, a a message they believe in. They're committed. They've got to be committed, right? And this is exactly where I think we've got great leadership in this country and why we're going to find a solution to this eventually is because you've got people who are not necessarily the politicians and they're not the people who are on the front page of the paper every day, but they're committed because they know this is important, needs to be done. Uh, it's hard work. It's thankless work, uh, but it takes consistency and it takes a lot of hard work. So on the note of sports, um, we've also been seeing a an increased, I guess, intertwining of sports and politics. Right? And so... It's, you know, aside from sports and business, there's also been this increasing movement within both, you know, the NFL, the NBA, women's soccer teams, and, and several other groups that have started integrating politics and social justice movements and things of that nature into sports, right? Whether that's kneeling for the anthem or wearing jerseys with specific names or, or so on, right? The We've seen these protests increasing uh, in frequency and, you know, in more or less in support from a lot of different groups. Um, so I was hoping to get your perspective on that and both ask if, if you've seen anything like that in, the, in soccer and with your team and, and others, but also just how you feel that may impact both of those realms, having them intertwined, right? Typically people go to sports for a break, right? For a break from the real world, right? You kick off your shoes after work, you watch the football game. And now the, the real world has become much more intertwined in that otherwise leisure activity. And so I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts on merging to more so nowadays may, may lead to both, both good and bad. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm, I'm the least political person you'll ever meet. And um, uh, I'm proud of that. And I'll always stay that way. I'm, I'm not a fan of politicians and, and all the rhetoric that goes on there. I understand it's a necessary part of our society, uh, but that's not what I spend a lot of my time dealing with. So I, I don't get too much into the politics side of it. In the soccer world, um, it, it's a very unique sport in as much that it's more um, uh, there's more international people involved in it. Right. So you've got more countries involved um, and where the Bucks are concerned every year, we have at least 10 to 15 different countries represented uh, players from all over the world that play. Uh, obviously uh, we're, we're very committed to the African nations uh, and some of our greatest players have come from all, all parts of Africa. So as far as the, the black lives matter movement, um, uh, the the pride movement we we had we raised so much money the past two years uh, it's the soccer community is a different breed than the NFL uh, it's different than the NBA it's different than Major League Baseball and they all are very different by the way we could spend hours talking about how different they are but that's not the important part so it doesn't affect me that much if if my players come out and say they want to stand on their head and and you know they want to wear whatever message they want if it's the right message uh, and it's about social justice and it's about you know, caring about different people from different parts of the world. Well, I'm all for it. Uh, that that is the game of soccer. It is the world's game, uh, even here in America. So I I support what all the guys are doing. Um, and and you know, for the most part, everybody's pretty respective. And that's one of the beautiful parts about our locker room. Uh, inside of our locker room, when you've got uh, people of three, four different colors, twelve different nationalities, uh, all with their arms around each other, wanting to go out and kick somebody's butt on a soccer field, win, lose, or draw, and they're doing the same thing at the end of a game. Uh, it, it isn't about politics. 
It isn't about COVID. It isn't about marches. It isn't about protests. This is the way it's been for the 25 years. I've had these kids in the locker room, and it's no different this year. What is a little bit different is what is the expectation when they walk out? What do the fans want to see them do? And then the soccer fans, they're all for it. They're, they're right. all for supporting people. Uh, much different than, you know, uh, if we were walking out in front of 80,000 people at Ford Field or somewhere else. So I, I really couldn't speak to that. Yeah, no, that's a great point about the international aspects of soccer, right? It's very much less a an American sport, right? It's a much more an international thing. And so it, it is a it's a very different different situation for sure. So Dan, the the last thing that we try to ask all of our interviewees, we have two different questions, if you will, or prompts that we provide you at the very end. Um, the first of which is to give you an opportunity to say what needs saying. And if you think there's anything else that we've missed on any of the topics that we've touched on, if there was anything else that you felt needed more detail or explanation um, or any topics that we've just completely passed over that you think are important to discuss in these areas. And then on top of that, we also then wanted to give you an opportunity to plug anything that you think is important, whether that be your business or anything that you have coming up for the soccer team or anything of that, of that nature. And so I thought I'd turn it over to you and see if, you know, and if, if you think we, we covered all the bases and there's nothing left to say, that's fine too. But I figured I'd turn it over to you and see if you had anything left to say about anything that we've discussed today and also then to allow you to give a plug. Yeah, I appreciate it. I really don't have a lot to plug guys. Appreciate the time. Uh, you know, if, if, if anybody's looking for the world's greatest air cleaner, you want to look at it, go to filterqueen.com and you can look at the defender and, and it'll tell you everything you need to know. We're, we're happy to answer any questions. You can find everything else you want online. And if you want to see, uh, uh, if you're hanging around in Michigan next summer and you want to see a great soccer game, go to Atwood Stadium and see the Flint City Bucks. Uh, we, we won't disappoint. But, uh, uh, you know, other than that, I, I think that the, the only point that maybe wasn't brought out here that I'll say as an old guy, older guy, is that I've been hearing for the last 10, 15 years about um, how lazy the younger generation is and millennials this and Gen X this not. You know, uh, that, that's all a bunch of BS. Uh, Thank you. You, 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 <laughs> you kids – you kids need to start running the world if you haven't already. And in some cases you have, uh, this future is all in your hands. Uh, the next 30 to 40 years are what you guys make it, not what the 80 year olds that are going to be elected president are going to make it. Uh, they're going to do what needs to be done for the next three to four years. But the, the future's in the hands of the, of the 20 to the 40 year olds right now. And I hope they understand the seriousness of it. I think a lot of you have, and when you start to hear it with climate change and all those things, Guys, don't just talk about it. Get off your ass and go make it happen because there's a lot of great leaders with you young kids. And uh, I think that uh, my kids and my grandkids' uh, futures are in really good hands if you guys will just not talk about it and get off your butts and do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, I'll echo Brandon's thank you. That, that means a lot, right? It's, you know, that is the, the narrative that gets pushed a lot. And so, you know, we're trying. We're trying to, like I said, that's the, that's the point of this podcast is hopefully to at least start that conversation with those that aren't even talking about it, right? That, are, that still need that push to start talking about it. And then, you know, after you say what needs saying, you got to do what needs doing, though. And, and there's a whole other yep. step to that for sure. Well, you guys, are, you're, you're starting it. So, yeah, you got step one down. Now we'll go to the next step two. So keep up the good work. Appreciate the time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dan. All right, guys. Thanks. All right. Take care. 
Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Say What Needs and on Instagram and Facebook at Say What Needs Saying for live updates and sound bites from our actual podcast. Don't forget to continue the discussion. Thank you for listening. Thanks.